sometimes the Fed watching is way overblown. In this at this point at this cycle, I don't think it is. I think it's really everything. Because if the Fed changes, the dollar changes. If the dollar changes, rates change. If rates change, stocks, gold, everything starts falling apart. There's is so many trades wrapped into that right now. It's really the most important thing. So we've got a lot of ground to to cover today. I want to make sure there are three kind of large topics that I want to ask you about, which is I think on everyone's mind really, but a Fed pause slash pivot, a recession, and then I want to get your thoughts on earnings. Uh, but maybe actually before we even get into that, I want to sort of get your thoughts on a soft a soft landing. I know earlier, kind of in 2022, you were advocating for that. Uh, and then, you know, towards the end of the year, that was looking a little bit less on the table. Going into this year, a soft landing has become, I wouldn't say it's consensus, but the possibility kind of is rising and rising and rising. And I would just love to get your thoughts about where that sits. Sure. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I kind of feel like as the consensus has moved in one direction, I've moved in another direction. So, mm. you know, I was giving interviews and doing media stuff last fall. And I was asked a few times, what is, what, what do you peg the, the probability of a soft landing at? And this was like, you know, October of last year, November of last year. And my response was somewhere around 40%. I think we have a, a fair uh, chance of doing, of, of turning, uh, pulling off the soft landing. And uh, as we've moved forward in time, though, I've kind of reduced that probability. It seems like the market is more confident that a, a soft landing is coming. But I would say our most recent, and this is just kind of giving people putting numbers on our thoughts, which is I'd say about a 20% chance now that we pull off a soft landing. And, you know, what we started looking at was if you're going to have a soft landing, it's the you have to focus on the housing market. I think that's the the key uh, ingredient to pulling the soft landing off and avoiding a recession. If you understand how recessions materialize, you really need to have job losses. And then when you think about where do those job losses come from, even though construction is only four and a half percent of the economy, when you go through your average recession since 1950, about 15% of the jobs lost in each recession come from the construction industry. So if we, have a housing slowdown that persists, then it's highly unlikely that we're going to have a soft landing. And what I'm seeing is given Fed policy and everything else we look at, it's becoming less likely that we can avoid this period of time without a meaningful uh, housing slowdown. So, but that leads to how could we, we get a soft landing, which I'm happy to walk you through what is a soft, what would a soft landing look like in our view? I think that would be, yeah, that would be great if you wouldn't mind going a little deeper there. Right. And so the, I think, as I said, housing is the most important ingredient to a soft landing. If you look at housing affordability right now, the average real monthly house payment is at $2,800 a month. I think the big reason why you've seen the soft landing, and that's, that's way above historic average. So we consider anything above 2000 historically expensive and unaffordable for housing. And we've done a bunch of studies that when housing affordability goes above or that housing payment number goes above $2,000 a month, you end up seeing first a, a series of events. First, you get a, a drop in NAHB, home builder sentiment, which we've seen. You know, Everyone's pointed to that as a leading indicator. You then find construction spending rolling over which we've also seen. And finally, you get construction layoffs, 
We haven't seen that yet. So in order, historically, it doesn't make sense for us to get to this place where home builder sentiment's low, spending's low, home affordability is this off the charts high, and not eventually have that feed into construction payrolls. It will eventually if we don't get affordability down. Now, why has the market rallied so much and started pricing in soft lane? I think it is a really ground zero is a drop in mortgage rates. So we've seen mortgage rates go from plus 7% to they were sub 6%, just a hair under 6% here recently on a national average. And that's, you know, I think that's a good start. That's what you would need to see. You would need to see more work from rates, more work from mortgage rates to pull off a soft landing. We can't get housing affordability back through a housing crash. That would not that would be a hard landing almost by definition. So we would need rates to come down. And, and so we kind of decomposed mortgage rates. And we said, what's driving these rates so high right now? Well, number one, we've seen MBS spreads to the 30-year treasury blow out. You know, historically, post-financial crisis, uh, which is really the period you want to study for these mortgage studies. Uh, Post-financial crisis, the average spread from MBS to treasuries, 30-year treasuries, is about 90 basis points. That blew out the 300 basis points. It's come in a little bit to about 250, 260 basis points at this point. If you want a soft landing, you need to see that spread, in our view, go back to historic norms. And so when we think about the mortgage market, what what would make, what why have those spreads blown out? Well, one of the primary reasons in our view is interest rate volatility. So if you think about a mortgage and you have the prepayment risk of a mortgage, um, really what that's like, it's, it's really if you think about selling a covered call on a 30-year bond, that's what it's like because your upside is, is sort of capped on mortgages. If rates drop a lot, you're going to get a wave of refinancing. So that expresses that's expressed in our view as kind of a very simplistically as a an option that's written on top of a bond. So if you think about that, and then you think about what happens to option pricing when you have high volatility in an underlying market, those option premiums go up. So we've had insane rate volatility over the last year since the Fed started hiking rates. It's not surprising that we've seen that spread between MBS and 30-year treasuries blow out because what we do is we think of that spread basically as an option that you're paying for to refine to prepay as a consumer when you buy a mortgage. And that's become much more expensive over the last year. So we would need to see rate volatility come down, which would allow that spread to compress. So that would be step one of a soft landing, we think. Uh, step two, in our view, if you think of other factors that are increasing that spread, it's quantitative tightening. The Fed is now allowing MBS to roll off its balance sheet. If you study periods of QE and QT, periods of QT are marked by larger spreads between MBS and treasuries. So QT, if the Fed were to signal that they're going to end QT sooner, then I think that also opens up the pathway to a soft landing. Uh, and then finally, that would also probably help on rates in general, which would help. So the ultimate conclusion is we need those mortgage rates to come down significantly. We think the housing market can withstand maybe a 5% haircut further from here, which would be an 8% peak to trough decline. If you had just the right things, then you get housing affordability back to that $2,000 number. So again, $2,800 a month payments right now, those factors we outlined. MBS spreads coming in, rates falling because of Fed reversing course on its balance sheet policy and rates in general. And then finally, you get a small haircut in housing. 
that those things happen, we get housing affordability back, can avoid the construction layoffs, and ultimately you could have a soft landing. And that's the ingredients that we see. Now, that's not my base case. That's not our base case. We don't see uh, all those stars aligning in just the right way, but it's important to walk through what would a soft landing look like? And to us, that's what it is. So we need rate vol to fall. We need the Fed reverse course. We need the housing market to cool, but not crash. Really helpful, Warren. Could could you um, could you explain to me a little bit about what are sort of those dynamics in term when when QT starts taking place? You that that really impacts Treasuries and that impacts MBS, and those are both sort of getting sold off or allowed to mature at the same time. How does that how is that sort of differentially impacted, or like what is the effect of QT on on mortgage rates? Yeah, I think that the QT is a, a difficult uh, process for a lot of people to understand. It's more complicated than QE. And you have a philosophic divide in the market of QE and balance sheet operations and what matters. I think there are a lot of folks in kind of the MMT camp who have said QE is meaningless and QT therefore is more or less meaningless. We aren't there. And then you have another group that says QE and QT are the dominant forces in the market. And all you really need to do is measure market liquidity uh, and QT or QE's impact on market liquidity in order to know where stocks are going, bonds are going, et cetera. We're, we're somewhere in the middle. I think the impact on MBS is way more straightforward. We've always said that QE's most powerful, the most powerful component of QE is how it works through what we would call or what the Fed would call in their writings, the duration channel. So if you're thinking about QE, you are, you know, the Fed's buying bonds and pushing reserves out into the market. So it's basically pushing, taking away long duration options and pushing in short duration, ultimate short duration reserves. And that's, you know, all else equal, that's going to lower your long-term rates. And of course, it's going to push people farther out into the risk spectrum. So that's pretty straightforward. QT, if you just think about it as a reverse of that, should have the reverse impact where the duration is being added to the market, reserves are being drained. So that is basically what's happening with the mortgage-backed securities side of the equation. So Fed's got a target of about $35 billion a month of MBS that's going to allow to roll off its balance sheet. It has not been hitting that target through QT, but still, even if they're only doing half of that, that's still, you know, take a big buyer has stepped away from the mortgage market, the Fed. And so the the market, that's that market has to digest that. All else equal, if you hold the amount of the uh, mortgages being issued constant, then more duration is going to have to be digested in that market. In other words, rates are going to go up on mortgage uh, products and you're going to see those spreads go up. So on the mortgage side, it's pretty straightforward. It is a reverse of QE. And in our view, it's kind of the most important aspect of QT right now is the, the what it's doing to the mortgage rates. Uh, on the treasury side, it gets a little more complicated because you have the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen over here who can can kind of blunt the impacts of QT if she chooses to. So in, she can, you know, everyone now, I guess at this point, knows that the Treasury general account has, hmm. it's it had a huge influx of money through the beginning of last year. There was a, she issued a lot of securities ahead of QT when QE was still going on. And then we had this, tr this deluge of tax receipts in Q2 and Q3. So by May of last year, there was almost a trillion dollars sitting in the TGA. So all this liquidity talk is basically looking at that and saying, okay, well, Yellen 
get when the, those bonds roll off the Fed's balance sheet, Yellen's got to pay them back, right? So she's she can just dip into the TGA, pay those bonds back, and she doesn't issue new debt. So the whole duration channel I just described at the beginning, it doesn't it it stops right there. There is no more duration being pushed out into the market. So that's one way that Yellen it can can complicate or blunt or sterilize the the QT mm. impacts. Another way that she can do that is once that TGA is run down or she, she doesn't want to tap into it, she doesn't have to replace long-term debt with more long-term debt. So if they're paying back notes and bonds, let's say they're paying back a 10-year note, they could issue the treasury by they could issue a, a one-year zero coupon T-bill. And so that's, you know, they're, they're closing out long duration and pushing short duration bills into the market. If they do, if she does that, it also blunts the impact of QT. And when you look at it, she's used both of those tools aggressively since October to, since really the October lows, which is what leads a lot of people to conclude this is the dominant force of the market. She's used both of those tools to blunt the impact of QT and issue short dated debt and run down the TGA. So that's how we view QT. Its main straightforward impact is on the uh, mortgage market. And the way it works is through the duration channel. In our view, reserves, a lot of people focus on reserves. We are, we, I don't believe that's the, the, the main factor here. Re reserves don't magically show up in the mar stock market and banks are not reserve constrained. They haven't been reserve constrained for years. They're never reserve constrained, frankly. They just make loans and find the reserves later. So they, their loans are going to grow based on final long-term demand in the market. So I, our view is we downplay the impact of QT on draining reserves, but we absolutely think it is a major factor in the mortgage market and at times in the treasury market as it forces duration into the market. The market has to digest that duration and rates pressures rates higher, pressures uh, risk premiums across the spectrum higher. So that's how that's how we look at Q2T. So QT being relatively complicated, but in, in terms of how it impacts mortgages, that that sort of premium and just the overall cost of duration, especially when it comes to mortgages going up, is just to sort of put a bookend bookend to this point. Uh, it, it's hard. It's kind of I guess looking at the world through that lens, it's harder to see. Uh, sort of the soft landing scenario as it as it pertains to housing that you were describing before, and what looks a lot more likely basically is the kind of uh, crash scenario, which obviously makes housing more affordable, uh, but it also would kind of fall definitively into the the hard landing camp. Is that yeah, absolutely. That's the the big bottom line of all that complexity that I just spit out is that if we keep with QT, it's going to be very difficult for us to get mortgage rates down to where they need to make housing affordable without a housing crash. And so mm -hmm. a key thing that we're going to watch is when will the Fed be ending QT? And there is no real clarity on this right now, right? The, the two, you know, kind of ways of thinking of it is the Fed is going to, and this was traditional, the Fed's going to do QT until they drain reserves to, you know, eight to 10% of nominal GDP, which would mean if you play out what's happening right now, we may have another six months of QT and then they stop. And mm -hmm. if you look at the TGA, which I just talked about, that Yellen will be able to offset most of that. So QT could end up becoming kind of nothing except for to the mortgage effect we talked about, but that, there's an end in sight so the market could get revved up by it. 
the a, a few folks, Gov, Governor Waller, who has gotten a lot of attention for his soft landing discussions, he said that maybe we should look at uh, reverse repo, which has about two trillion in it right now, as an addition to reserve. So if you add reverse repo to that calculation, now QT could last through 2024, and I think that would be it would be really difficult for me to see us go to a soft landing given the dynamics we just described in the mortgage market we would need to see if QT lasted for you know 24 more months. Yeah. Warren, a question that I have for you on that is, this is where I'm sort of borrowing from Joseph Wang, who's an ex-trader from, from the Fed. But you know, in, in his mind, it's sort of dogma at the Fed that the the hiking cycle and QT slash QE sort of line up, right? And And you would not have necessarily a scenario where the Fed is loosening but or pausing, but then continuing QT, because in their mind, that's kind of like putting your foot on the gas and the brake at the same time. So in terms of, you know, predicting or trying to get a sense of when QT might stop, is it appropriate to kind of look at or have a view on when the Fed might pause or eventually begin easing it? Maybe that just kind of leads into the next question. Like, what is your sort of working thesis or outlook for what we can expect in terms of uh, a pause and maybe not pivot, but eventual easing of rates. I'm going to give you the idea of what we think is going to happen this year. But yeah. a big a big problem we see is the there's so many, like there's old sayings that you list. If you go through markets and market cycles, you hear a lot of these sayings pop up. And so I worked at Ned Davis Research with Ned Davis himself for 10 years. And Ned had a list of, of old market sayings. And his rules of research. And his friend was Marty Zweig. Marty Zweig is a famous trader. Yeah. Marty, Marty had his 17 rules of trading. The two that everyone knows are don't fight the tape and don't fight the Fed. And the truth is, these are great sayings and they make sense. And they're just like any old proverb or saying that you remember from growing up, like there's truth in it, but applying it to life is hard. And this is the same thing with these two, these two sayings. It's hard to apply this in real time. So I think you're set up where you're fighting the Fed right now. That's the dominant factor. If you want to go with trend and technical evidence, you're ultimately going against fighting the Fed. So either you're either fighting the Fed or you're fighting the tape as we sit here today on Friday, the 10th of February. Um, I think, and I think this is the way that, most, I, I believe, I don't know what everyone else thinks. I believe the dominant force in this market right now is the Fed and that you should defer to the Fed and Fed policy in the Fed cycle. So what this says, we need to parse Fed statements like never before. So if you're not a Fed watcher, you need to become one. If you're just watching the tape without regard to the Fed, I think you need to you know, keep one eye on the on the Fed for sure. And so when the Fed pauses, and we'll talk about where I think this is going to happen or where it could happen and what happens typically, when the Fed pauses, we're going to be watching closely to see what is the nature, like what is the language around that pause? What's going to happen to the balance sheet through QT? And what are their, what's their guidance there? And so I think that's really important this time. It's really important to listen to what they're, what they're saying and, and get into that. Sometimes the Fed watching is way overblown. In this at this point at this cycle, I don't think it is. I think it's really everything. Because if the Fed changes, the dollar changes. If the dollar changes, rates change. If rates change, 
stocks, gold, everything starts falling apart. There's is so many trades wrapped into that right now. It's really the most important thing. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. So I, I think you're you're probably about to get into this, but could could you just for for the listeners uh, and, and for me, could you what is the the tape and the tactical sort of pointing you towards? What is the Fed kind of pointing you towards? And then maybe I'll just ask if you could use that as a jumping off point. I'd love to kind of get to just what you think is going to happen this year. The tape, like I said, is always hard to define it, but let's just think about a few things that have happened technically, which are really in a vacuum, very bullish right now. We've broken above the 200-day on the S&P 500, which the 200-day is a great little easy risk management tool historically. A lot of systems plug it into it as a risk management tool. Uh, the 50-day is above the 200-day. So that's what we would call a golden cross. So historically, a positive for the market. Getting a little more arcane, let's look at the NASDAQ first. The NASDAQ broke above its 40-week moving average on the highest volume that we've seen in like 10-plus years. So again, it looks from a technical tape standpoint, it looks like a breakout. We've also seen uh, what we would call breadth thrust. So it's a little more arcane, but a breadth thrust is you can measure it a number of ways. And again, Marty Zweig was famous for these breadth thrusts and something that we've looked at in my career a lot. But you're looking for broad-based participation in a large universe of stocks. So you can take like the Russell 3000 or the S&P 1500, and you're looking for, you know, 90% of stocks to be uh, above the 10 day moving average, for instance, that would be a breadth thrust. And historically, when you go three, six, 12 months out from those breadth thrusts, it's very positive for the stock market. So this is tape evidence. This is don't fight the tape. So if you go against that evidence, if you say, hey, I don't trust this market rally right now, you're ultimately doubting the tape. You're going against that one big rule that we we laid out at the beginning. So that's the tape. That's the technicals. It does look bullish. I think the weight of the evidence is bullish on technicals. What is the Fed? I mean, the Fed is hiking rates and it's the fastest hike cycle ever. And they're also doing QT, which we just talked about all the, the downstream implications of QT. The Fed itself guesses that QT is the equivalent of 30 to 80 additional basis points onto the Fed funds rate. And so the, the Fed is undoubtedly a, a headwind to the market right now. They're hiking rates. The data is shifting in a way that looks like the pause is coming later and later. Um, as the, the farther they go, the more restrictive policy goes. It's definitely a bad time. Uh, the Fed is a head one. It's a, you're fighting the Fed if you get long. So that's the that's the uh, tension that I was highlighting with those two rules right now. Um, 
we started asking, you know, is there a way for us to quantify these rules and looking at, you know, which one wins out? And what we found is that for, for instance, almost every one of the rules, the technical things I just laid out, if you dig deeper and say, okay, what about if this fires during a Fed hike cycle or in a pause that immediately follows a hike cycle? If you take those two, that if you chunk up the data in that way and then set it aside and look at those signals, almost every one of the technical signals that we looked at earlier, that it degrades their performance. So the bottom line is, even though you might say, don't fight the, don't fight the tape, that's your dominant rule. And it's, it, the data doesn't really bear that out. So you're fighting the fed really does historically even hurt your, your technical indicators. So that's the tension. Those, that's how I define those things. Now, when is the fed going to pause? That's, um, when we came into the year, we said, okay, we started the year by saying, what's the historic cycle look like? What would it be? And if you remember, it feels like two months ago was an eternity ago, but two months ago, the consensus view was we were coming into 2023 and then immediately going to hit a recession and that market was going to make its lows in the first half of 23 and it was going to rebound and be strong through the second half of 23 and rally into 24. That was the consensus. It's hard to remember that now. We said, we think the market's more or less range bound in the first half of the year. This cycle will take time to play out. And if you take the historic cycle, the Fed's not gonna be pausing. The, the Fed probably pauses in March is what we said at the end of last year. It looks like that's getting pushed back. And the traditional pause following a hike cycle is like seven months. So that's seven months that you, you're on pause from like March. Historically, the recession comes after the pause because the Fed starts cutting rates a little too late because they can see the weakness coming. And then the recession usually starts a month or two after they start cutting rates. So once the Fed starts cutting rates, the recession is already, it's, you know, it's like baking a cake. All the ingredients are in the oven. You just got to let the oven go for a certain amount of time. So the, the, the cake is baking and the Fed is always, they never can pull everything off and get out, get out of the, uh, restrictive policy fast enough. That's the lesson of history. And so we would expect a recession to occur in the second half of this year. We would expect to see, again, the market would make its lows shortly after the beginning of a recession, earnings would bottom after that. So the historic cycle tells, told us expect market lows in the second half of 23 and the recession to span all the way into 2024. And that was our base case. I would say there's not enough conclusive data to change from our base case, but we've seen some interesting stuff come into the market here at the first part of 2023, um, which is worth thinking about. But you also have to consider that there is a concept in markets where price changes sentiment. So everyone was off sides at the beginning of the year. The market rallies and does all this and has all these technical uh, indicators fire. It feels to me like it's sucking a lot of people in. Inf inflicting a lot of pain on those really max bearish positions entering 2023. So um, as of now, our base case remains, but we can talk about the evidence that's that has us questioning it as well. Yeah, let's, let's get into that. What, what, what would be sort of the steel man argument uh, against everything that you just said? 
where could we be wrong? Because our big, yeah. the other thing that we said was going to happen going into this year is we were real big believers in rapid disinflation. And so we started making this call all the way back last summer that we saw a path again to 2% CPI in 2023. And that was way out of consensus at the time. Again, the consensus has moved to this place. It felt like up until a couple of weeks ago, where everyone was like, yeah, inflation is is dead and gone. And now we've had a few data points that I think should force everyone to reconsider because the big drivers of that disinflation were goods pricing and specifically car pricing yeah. and, and then also energy pricing. And so we we ran our scenarios and looked at um, holding hold a few things constant, play with the car numbers. And that's how we saw a path to 2% CPI. Well, we've said it before, used car prices lead new car prices because used car prices end up being trade-ins. It, it facilitates new car deals and where you can price those new cars. Supply chains are starting to open up. So we were expecting used car prices to continue declining, feed into new car prices, and pull that core part of the CPI lower. Well, Mannheim used car index has now had two straight prints of of month over month gains in used car prices. Mm -hmm. This is a really important data point to watch if you're a disinflation person like myself. Um, in the you have to wonder, is it possible that we're seeing a reacceleration of the economy? And that seemed highly improbable to me just, you know, four months ago or so. But we can construct a scenario where that makes sense because what we've seen is those mortgage rates fall the rates across the curve on the back half of the curve have fallen. So even though the Fed's hiking short-term rates, you've seen everything from five out to 30 years fall in the, in the last four or six months. Has this potentially uh, reinvigorated the consumer somewhat? So there's probably some pent-up demand for housing and cars. If that were to come back into the market due to these rates falling faster, and we've seen mortgage application pick up. So that's led a lot of people to say, hey, is housing bottom? I don't think that's the case. Um, these kind of moves are self-defeating, but it could still slow this disinflation train that was working. And then ultimately the, the key feedback loop is back to the Fed. So the Fed doesn't pause in March like we thought. The Fed now extends their cycle. They have to start re, uh, reintroducing that strong hawkish rhetoric that they've that Powell is you know, clearly kind of uh, gotten lax on all those things compound and it compounds at a point where everyone's gotten long and convinced themselves that the coast is clear in equities. So that's the really, I think it should scare a lot of people um, that that scenario, if these used car prices ticking up the jobs report, which obviously every, there's a lot of revisions to the jobs report, but that was a strange report. Yeah. If, these things, if these things really start to, materialize and this real reacceleration does happen, then uh, that would be, I think, a, a very negative outcome for risk assets and for bonds, honestly, which we've been huge proponents of bonds. Not, not that it really matters, but you know the the response to the last presser from Powell was a little bit. I think a lot of folks were surprised at, at the rhetoric that he that he used and definitely came off as much more dovish. And, you know, following, following that FOMC, we had, I don't want to say necessarily a return to 2021, but, you know, Carvana was up 100% in five days. And, you know, if you pay attention to crypto, I mean, that was sort of experiencing resurgence. And 
I mean, how, how much does that sort of play into things as well? Just that you, you could see that positive feedback loop of that, you know, gambling and asset prices kind of rising again. Uh, I mean, that could sort of jumpstart. Uh, I mean, does that have the potential to jumpstart inflation again? You know, there was a uh, minutes from the December meeting, I believe yeah. this is where the minutes from the December meeting where Powell said that an unwarranted loosening of financial conditions could impede their progress to lowering inflation. And financial conditions is just code for stocks and bond spreads. So um, basically what he's saying is if the stocks market rallies too aggressively and credit spreads come in, then you know we could have a you know recharge that wealth effect that was so powerful during the, the 2021 yeah. time. Uh, now, then he came out at the most recent press conference, and I think this was really a big part of the rally we've had at the most recent press conference. He was asked, well, hey, financial conditions have really loosened. Are you sticking to your guns? He's like, well, what are you talking about? Financial conditions have actually tightened over the last year. So he didn't take that opportunity to kind of, um, he, he more or less gave a green light to stocks at that point, you know, and mm -hmm. I think that is probably a tactical mistake on his end that he'll have to end up walking that back because they're, they're, the, the wealth effect is real. Uh, and so th those that's absolutely could be part of the reacceleration we're seeing, you know, falling rates and financing costs, and then you get a reacceleration of stock prices. And another factor, which a lot of people haven't talked about and we're, we're kind of digging into right now is, is there a, a under the radar a stimulative impact of these short-term rate rises, meaning that for the Uber, the wealthier savers who can put their money in, um, they're in money market funds right now for, if, you know, for, if you have a million dollars or more, you can get close to 5% in money market funds right now. And so that's a, a highly stimulative thing for, uh, I'd say the upper class. And then if you have finance, so you have the yield curve inverting like this, where stimulating the, the upper class on the rate increases on the front end, then you have lower financing costs for maybe the middle end consumers in the economy, that could be just the, a, a nasty mix for a reacceleration. Um, so that's something we're thinking through as well, is that how, mm. how actually stimulative are these uh, rate hikes for certain segments of the population? So I, I want to get your thoughts on earnings this year in general. Um, so I'm look, looking at a, a chart here, but basically forward-looking EPS growth is now sort of flat to, to negative. And those estimates have been sort of coming uh, down and down and down. So how do you kind of think about earnings relative to like bear markets in, in the stock market? Um, and, and then what, what are your sort of thoughts on, on kind of earnings high level for, for 2023? Yeah, I, the, the big rule of thumb, every cycle is different. And so you have to kind of go each cycle. But the rule of thumb is that the stock market bottoms before earnings stabilize. Mm -hmm. And so forward earnings is a little more um, coincident, but trailing earnings stabilize about four to six months. Maybe six months is better after a stock market bottom. So number one, it would be very, it'd be strange to see forward earnings from here, if October were the absolute lows for the cycle, it would be pretty strange to see forward earnings continue to decline here because we've seen a pretty big move in forward earnings. So we were just looking at our, in November, we wrote a report talking about all these dynamics of the market. And at the, since, since November, we've seen 
2023 EPS go down by 6%. And so that's continued to move lower and 2024 earnings also are moving lower. So it's concerning. And typically what you would see is earnings stabilize because here we are four months from the supposed bottom in October. You'd want to see earnings stabilize here in the next two months in order to basically have that confirmation signal that October actually was the lows. This is a new bull market. Everything is okay to buy equities. You have the green light for equities. Um, and, and so that's a, a key thing to watch. Uh, it, that would be a soft landing. I think that would look like a soft landing. And that's what the, the earnings picture looks like to me right now is that we have 2023 is now uh, in contraction. So you're seeing the market price a very modest contraction in for 2023. And then you're seeing a 10% gain in earnings priced in for 2024. So margins are really near um, all-time highs. 2023, the market's pricing in at 12.5% profit margin for the S&P 500. And then what does the market price end for 2024? 5% top-line growth, 50%, 50 basis point margin expansion back to 13%. So, I mean, you're you're buying the market here. You're buying a soft landing. That's what's priced in in your earnings outlook. So if you don't get that soft landing, if you get the higher for a longer acceleration, if you get the hard landing in second half 2023, which is our base case, you're not being compensated for that. That's not being, you're not being compensated for that. And so that's our biggest, that would be the biggest bone we have to pick with earnings. If you think about his, in modern history, there've only been four other cases where forward earnings went negative like this. And three of those cases led to recessions. And each one of the cases, the next 12 months was not a great time to be long stocks. So no matter how I I look at the, the earnings picture, I don't think uh, it doesn't incent me into the stock market. You know, I don't, I don't see how we, it, if we get the soft landing outcome, then we're, you know, the market will more or less get the earnings it's pricing in. It's not like the market is is fairly valued right now either. If we look at um, based on forward earnings and, and interest rates, just a really basic model, the market's ten percent overvalued. Again, each one of these bear market rallies has stopped at a ten percent overvalued level, and so I, you know, it just it's hard for me. Even the technical, though the technical evidence looks good, it's hard for me to say, hey, let's buy stocks here at four thousand one hundred, four thousand S and P. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you all have been there last year. Uh, it is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas? Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> Uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had the two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times, Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero, just a phenomenal lineup of speakers. And you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you will get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10 because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. Now, the something that we haven't really talked about, but I, I'd love to get your thoughts on is you know, this, the injection of liquidity and sort of stimulus going on in China, and then the, you know, inevitable reopening there. And I think that's, you know, I, I kind of think the story of the last couple of months has been, I think you defined it, and you're either fighting the Fed or fighting the tape. But there are a lot of sort of conflicting 
signals, right? And I think it's very, there's something for everyone here for both bulls and bears, right? It's very easy to construct a world uh, where actually things are turning around and looking better. It's easy to construct a world where actually the we haven't had that shoe drop either, you know, due to valuation in the stock market or, you know, the Fed, you know, signaling that they're going to continue to hike and withdraw liquidity. Uh, but then also we've kind of got this weird bogey out out east uh, in China, which has basically been shut for the last two years because of because of COVID has now said, hey, actually, we are dropping our no COVID policy. We are going to start stimulating and we are back open for business, baby. So, I mean, how does that impact your your view over in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I think it's a huge complicating factor. And that's also part of, you know, a lot of people were, I think you buy the stocks and then you make the reason up later a lot of times. Um, but that was the story. <laughs> that was the story that you heard early this year, which I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. Is like, let's buy industrials because China's reopening. Yeah, I guess that makes some sense for certain specific companies, but for the broad market, I see it as a negative because I, I think it's going to ultimately, it, it puts a, uh, it, it puts a dagger in the disinflation story. I mean, I, I think it puts a huge floor under oil prices. And so today as yeah. we're taping this, Russia comes out and cuts um, oil production by half a million barrels a day. And, you know, I had sent a tweet out in January and just said, let's like keep our eyes on the big picture, which is that. China is going to increase demand by a million barrels a day and Russia is going to decrease production by a million barrels a day this year, most likely. And, you know, if you have a two million barrel a day swing in a hundred million barrel a day market like oil, that's a huge factor. So, I mean, I think oil prices as one of our other calls for 2023 was that we see triple digit oil prices in the first half of 2023. I definitely mm. think that that call stands um, and the China reopening is a big part of that. So uh, it, ultimately, how does the market read that, though, is I think that it's, it's if anything, it's going to keep the Fed from, you know, p pivoting aggressively, which is probably what we need to get a soft landing. You, you had a great point in, in an interview that I believe you recorded in uh, towards the end of December with um, Andreas and Alf, the macro trading floor. We kind of talked about this new regime for energy, where energy sort of decorrelated to, especially stocks and bonds, or the you know majority of the you know equities, and then and then certainly bonds. Can you kind of talk about your your kind of broader view about where you're seeing the energy sector sitting, and then also um, you know where you see oil going this year? Here's one thing you can say: we have if the recession becomes more closer to the the mind of the market, you're going to see stocks and bonds move against each other. Mm. We haven't seen that. Stocks and bonds still moving together. They're rallying together and they're selling off together. So that tells you that inflation and when it happens is the dominant force in the market still. If inflation is the dominant force in the market and when it stops or when it reaccelerates, then oil is going to be oil and energy, specifically energy sector equities in this case we're talking about, are going to be negatively correlated to everything else in the market. So there's a huge premium that you should build into these stocks for their diversification benefits. You don't get the diversification of buying stocks and bonds when inflation is your number one concern. So where do you get that, that, that diversification benefit? The energy sector. So we were calling last year for a, a re-rating of the energy sector based on diversification and based on um, energy security, new, newfound energy security appreciation for this this group of domestic producers and so that 
is an absolute like long-term theme of ours at this point. Uh, and so you want to keep that, even if like this first part of the year, I see a lot of people dancing on the grave of energy because they say, Hey, energy is the worst performing sector through the first month of 2023. Yeah. Well, I, I don't care if you have a, if you have a balanced stock bond portfolio and energy goes down, who cares? You know, that's, it's, it's doing its job. Now look what happened yesterday and look what's happening more today energy sector leading everything. It looks a lot more like last year. So we haven't put that regime of last year behind us yet. And so what that means is you need to keep energy as an overweight. If you're a PM or you're running a balanced portfolio, you need energy to be an overweight. Um, set aside what's going on with China, what your fundamental reasons are. For a pure quantitative diversification reason, you need to be long oil. And just the stat that I always give people, last year you saw Oil or energy, I should say, energy sector was negatively correlated to every other sector and fixed income. We've never seen that historically. We've never seen one sector in the market be negatively correlated to every other sector plus fixed income. So it's a really, it's a really uh, different type of regime that we're in. And I think it, it doesn't make any sense to be underweight energy right now. Mm. So, you know, tying that energy story to to inflation, I'm, I'm borrowing a little bit here from from Michael Cow and, and his thesis on inflation in general. But, you know, in, in his mind, which I, I largely agree with, is that a lot of the inflation story begun with energy. Right. Uh, and then it sort of leapt over into some of these stickier components of, of CPI. And if you look at historical examples in uh, uh, let me just give you my thoughts and can disagree. But, um, you know, if you look historically in the U.S., most infl in most periods of inflation, which is obviously the 40s and late 70s, early 80s, uh, energy was a big component of that, right? There was the oil embargo that everyone must talk about the 70s and 80s. Uh, and then, you know, I guess the 40s were kind of World War II. And that was a bit of a different story. But I, I would love to get your your kind of thoughts on how extricably linked these two components are the price of energy and the sort of more structural component of, of inflation. Yeah, I think there there's a huge linkage. I mean, if you go first off, let me just say I there I think that the, the predicting inflation beyond 12 months, even the 12 months as we're seeing, is near impossible. Yeah. Um and so, but we can say when we deconstruct the, the periods we go through that absolutely high energy costs are inflationary, no doubt. There's little argument to be had there. Um, you know, I think if you go back and look at what held CPI down for so many years, well, number one was the globalization trends starting around 2000. If you can just take a, a chart of durable goods in the CPI, and it's just straight down from like 1998 on until the pandemic hit. And that spikes way up because we have supply chain issues. And the other factor has been the shale revolution and cheap, you know, a newfound supply source for energy, oil and natural gas. So that's kind of gone at this point. That tailwind is becoming a headwind with when Russia, Ukraine started. So I disagree with the idea that energy kicked off the inflation. I still think inflation was what kicked off the inflation was number one, shutting down the world and supply chains. And then number two, pushing so much stimulus out and into the market. So you had supply constrained and then demand stimulated, stimulated like we've never seen before. And that created the, the first wave of inflation and really what I think was the most frustrating. Then Russia invading Ukraine was the second wave of inflation in my view. So once that happened, oil and energy started coming to the party and it became really a perfect, uh, a perfect storm for pricing. Um, 
so yeah, that's kind of how I, I see uh, the, the inflation causes really. But I, yeah, if we go, you know, I do see ultimately, uh, it's hard to say secular moves and stuff like that, but you do see over time, uh, what I would call a multi-year mean reverting cycle that emerges in commodities. And so for oil and energy, it's about an eight year cycle. So eight good years are followed by eight bad years and vice versa. I do think we're in, we would call that the secular trends of energy. I do think we're entering into a secular bull market for energy here in that this, the, the Russia Ukraine war was the catalyst for that. And then you're, you're, what you've seen in response is that domestic companies are not drilling. They're not pursuing capital spending plans. Instead, they're staying restrained, returning capital to shareholders. I mean, this has been a, the 10 years of over drilling and over producing in uh, treating shareholders like dirt really laid the foundation for when we come into these next few years, when we need new supply, it's going to be very difficult to get investors to go along with that and for management teams to go along with that in the, in the oil and gas market. So I think you're going to be stuck with higher prices over a long period of time. So uh, I guess, I guess Warren, I, we're, we're sort of drawing cl uh, to the close in, in just in terms of the amount of time that we have. If you want to leave listeners, I guess, sort of with it just, just bookend the conversation here and just kind of final thoughts on what this next year is going to look like. What's maybe something that you're paying attention to or honed in on that you don't think the rest of the market has necessarily picked up on yet? What's just kind of a thought uh, that, you, that you want to leave the listeners with? I think that the number one overarching theme that I think is these cycles take time to play out. Yeah. It's really easy to skip to the end of the book and want to read the end of the story and say, oh, this is going to end in a recession or it's going to end this way or that way. These things take time to play out. If you study the cycles, Fed cycles and everything else, a pause is generally good for stocks. If you go and read the, the Fed minutes around these pauses that lead into huge recessions, including like the financial crisis, the Fed always expects a soft landing or thinks there's a chance of a soft landing. And so does everyone else. And so what we're going through, in my mind, it might feel different and special. And this is a different cycle, so I don't want to overplay it. But this is time is a really impatience within the cycle is really important. And not to lose sight of where you are in the cycle and get too long at a time that's really maybe not the best time to be doing that or to get too negative at a time like we saw going into this year when it's really not time to get that negative yet. And so mm -hmm. these are that's the overarching thing I would say is that that these things take time to play out and give it time. Well, and I've actually got one last question for you when it, when it comes to that is that, that what you just said resonated with me. People want to skip to the end of the book. And I, I sort of think within broader society, it's certainly like operators of businesses. There's a, there's a, there's a bias towards positivity, right? And Oh, this, I know it's been like this in the past, but uh, overall, like I, I think it's people often their mind goes to like, oh, the like least bad end of the potential specter of outcomes. And they like kind of mentally anchor themselves to that. I'd be curious in, in the investor community, like, do you also feel like there's that same kind of bias? Like as probably my bias, I prefer to actually live in the worst outcome so I can mentally be okay with that. <laughs> and then I'll usually be okay with what ends up happening. Do, do you feel like that same bias exists in, in the investor community? What I think is that everyone has their own bias in that more important mm -hmm. to invest, more important than, identifying what 
uh, everyone else's biases is important mm. to identify your own bias when you approach the market and how you synthesize information. So I am a pessimist by nature. This is my bias. So I tend to see the glass is half empty. So I, I, what I do is when I build models, I need to force myself not to allow this model to become some, you know, sit the market out too much. And to remember the market in general over the long arc of time goes up. And yeah. those are really important lessons to program into things if you're a pessimist. Now, if you're an optimist, maybe it's good to get a little dose of, of, uh, of what could go wrong every once in a while. So I think it's less about finding what everyone thinks and what everyone's biases and more about knowing yourself than how you can, uh, you know, control for your own bias. And, and, and there's the number one thing is once you say an opinion out loud like this, your ego gets wrapped into it and you become stuck into this confirmation bias. So like whatever I just said today, I'm going to be, I'm going to fight against trying to get trapped in it because if I change my mind then everyone on Twitter is going to tell me I'm an idiot and oh my, you're wrong and you know, blah, blah, blah. You have to fight against that. The only thing that matters is helping your clients and making money. If you're me, you're helping clients and you're making, trying to make money and the, the enemy of making money of getting things right consistently is your own bias, your confirmation bias, whatever, whatever bias you entered into this endeavor in, those are the things you need to, to identify and control for. That's how I see it. Wise words, Warren. Um, if folks want to find out more about you or the work that you do at, at 314 Research, uh, what's the best way to uh, follow you or, or find out more? You can go to our website, 314research.com. Uh, we have some uh, pieces of... Uh, just uh, example research you can you can find and download and read. We also have some of our previous media appearances. You can look at that. We also have a website demo. So take a look at all that stuff and enter your name into the form. We are an institutional research provider. So in general, we deal with institutions. We have some high net worth individuals on the service as well, but it's a little bit more sophisticated than what I would say is a typical newsletter. If you don't want to do that, you can just follow us on Twitter. So at 3F underscore research on Twitter, or you can follow me at Warren Pies on Twitter. Um, and if you have questions and stuff, we're happy to enter into a dialogue. Awesome. Thanks, Warren. This has been a ton of fun, super illuminating for me. And yeah, guys, I highly recommend that you check out uh, Warren's work. Uh, Warren's a ton of fun. Uh, we'll have to do it again soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Cheers.